This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Uh, You could do that. Eating a lot of ice cream, I find, also helps. (laughs) Welcome to the program for Sunday, August the 7th, 2011. It's easy to get mad as hell, especially when the the mercury... um, heads into Hades territory, or Haiti territory, if you will. Uh, But just find a cool, shady spot and a a nice tub of... uh, I had the nicest ice cream this weekend, cappuccino. I think it's frozen yogurt. I don't know. Does it make any difference in terms of the caloric intake? You do the math. In the summer, I I just forget all, all about that, that, you know, counting calories, and I just enjoy... And I hope you're doing the same. And I hope you'll enjoy tonight's program because that's my mission. I'm here to entertain and to serve you. At, uh, it, it's great also to be in studio. I, it's, it's, it's solid. The, uh, the technology is, is rock solid. I've got good people behind the glass. David uh, tonight uh, sitting in for Griffin March, my regular technical producer. Uh, and next week I'll be in studio and then back on the road. Which is also fun um, as we continue to uh, produce episodes for season two of the Conspiracy TV show. And uh, in fact, the 23rd, just to give you a little uh, programming note here, just mark this down. The 21st, if the, uh, if the schedule, the itinerary for the TV shoot works out, I'll actually be doing the show live from Roswell, New Mexico. And uh, we'll get out there on the road, and, and, and it's not glamorous, let me tell you. Uh, just to give you a little bit of insight, I mean... Jalal Murray, the uh, the director and my television partner, executive producer of the program, the man is driven, all right? Runs a tight ship. He doesn't even like us to check bags. I mean, the minute we land, we're out of that airport into a, a rental car like a shot, and we're like driving like eight, nine, ten hours a day making our uh, schedule, our interview schedule. We'll, we'll stop at an, an SO for a sandwich, Esso, you know, they make nice gasoline, but not necessarily known for their cuisine. 
So we'll grab like a chimichanga or something <laughs> from an SO, and then we're eating while we're driving. And then so it goes. And then we end up at a, uh, I don't know, a Motel 6, and we, uh, we grab about six or five solid hours, and then we're back up the next day. <laughs> and after about eight or nine days, God love Jalal, but I'm anxious to get home. So uh, anyway, uh, the 21st of August in two weeks' time, uh, hopefully we'll be doing the show live from Roswell, New Mexico. All right, coming up in uh, hour two of the programming, we're going to speak to a channeler. Uh, Gordon Finn uh, wears a lot of hats. He's been on the show. uh, I've interviewed him about crop circles. I've interviewed him about uh, uh, past life regressions. He's a a regression therapist as well. Uh, But tonight he's going to uh, put on his channeling hat. And um, he'll tell us all about uh, uh, spirit communication, channeling, if you will. I look forward to that. I'm not sure how I, uh, where I stand. As, a, as an Orthodox Christian, uh, the concept of uh, spirit communication, communication with the dead, doesn't necessarily square with my faith, although from time I hear you know, counter uh, points of view on that from men of the cloth. Say, listen, we commune with the saints, right? We're, we're taught that in catechism. It's possible to commune with the saints. They're dead. Why not others? Anyway, Gordon Finn, channeling. And uh, he's actually has channeled the late John Mack, Harvard professor, alien abduction researcher extraordinaire. Uh, but first off, the last time I spoke with this gentleman was on a very sweltering day on the, the magnificent... Uh, campus at the uh, the University of Southern Mississippi down in Hattiesburg, uh, Mississippi, where I believe I find him tonight. He's an ad, an honor graduate in chemistry from Tennessee Technological uh, University. Talk about a guy who wears a lot of hats as well. He's published thousands of technical papers, been a featured scientist on History Channel, True TV, numerous documentaries, five-time Amazon best-selling author of the uh, critically acclaimed Arc of Millions of Years trilogy. Internationally renowned for his lectures on science and exploration into the mysteries of the universe and of the earth. He's an explorer. He's a physicist. He's leading an expedition sometime in 2012 to the, uh, the, the frigid waters off magnetic north, high in the Arctic, in search of an inner passage he hopes will lead to our hollow earth. And uh, his latest book is a, a marvelously enigmatic titled Remembering the Future, The Physics of the Soul and Time Travel. And uh, a great pleasure to welcome back to The Conspiracy Show, Brooks Agnew. Hello, Brooks. Thank you, Richard. What a great introduction. Thank you so much. Well, uh, are, you, um, are you in Hattiesburg tonight? Did we reach you down there again? I am in Hattiesburg, and it's just a couple of degrees above sweltering. Um, so... Uh, Nobody's talking about global cooling down here. No, indeed. Listen, I, uh, let's just dive right in. I, I will get an update on the expedition a little bit later, but uh, you know, you and I, whenever we talk on the radio, we end up talking about that. But I want to talk about other things uh, right now, and, and that is uh, uh, the new book, Remembering the Future. We talked about this briefly, I believe, over an iced cappuccino at a Starbucks down there in Mississippi, and I was intrigued. First of all, it is, an, it is a very odd title, Remembering the Future. Uh, and and as I've sort of delved into it, 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 it does sound 
somewhat reminiscent of a book that made the rounds on, uh, you know, Oprah and, and so forth a few years ago, The Secret, you know, this idea that we can, we are the, the masters of our future, we can create the future, we can recreate the past and these sorts of things. But your book is substantially uh, a, a different. Tell, tell, tell us how. Well, I, I think Rhonda Byrne did a great job with The Secret. I think she, she tapped into something that we innately know inside of each of us that what we sow we shall reap, that we create karma by our actions and our thoughts and our intentions. And it's, it's kind of been a loose canon in literature for a long, long time. And I think Rhonda Byrne did a good job of kind of bringing the canon down to eye level for people so at least we could aim it. Uh, in the book, uh, she at least talks about the idea of of, uh, of focusing on one idea in the future and putting your intention out on that. I liked the book so well, I ran out and bought magazines and scissors, and I cut pages and pictures out and put it all over my refrigerator. I, I turned my refrigerator into an intention machine. And then a very strange thing happened. Almost nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you were surprised. Yeah, I mean, and I thought to myself, well, if it's happening with me... Maybe it's happening with everybody that reads this book, or most of the people. Maybe they're only getting some of the stuff. And so I began to study what could be missing from this. What, what is the actual tool, the mathematical function? Because we're just talking about energy here. And being a physicist, I, I thought there may be an approach. Well, as luck would have it, uh, one night I was, uh, I was actually teaching. Uh, I was an adjunct professor, and I was teaching college algebra as a night course, and some of my students in this particular class were adults, and I did not want to teach this section of mathematics the old way, as I would, you know, students that were younger, say freshmen or sophomores, um, because I thought I would lose their interest. And as it turns out, there is, in mathematics, a philosopher that's mentioned, and his original name was Leonardo de Piso, and he was affectionately called Fibonacci. And he discovered a progression of mathematics by which bacteria and all kinds of botanical growth like sunflowers and pine cones and sea life like conch shells, and as it turns out, the periodic table, the way planets arrange themselves around suns, the way... Uh, chemicals bond together, all follow this mathematical sequence called the Fibonacci sequence. It goes something like this. If you were to recite it like an alphabet, you would start with zero, and you'd add one to it, and of course you'd get one. Then you take the next number in the sequence, one, and add it to one, you get two. And then one to two, you get three, and so forth, five, eight, thirteen, 21, 34, and as you go up through the sequence, you get to a, a certain slope that's pretty linear and doesn't vary very much. That is to say it has very little error in it, and that slope is 1.618 to 1. That happens to be the number phi. It happens to be linked to all kinds of sacred geometry, and it happens to be irrefutable, at least in this sequence. That's so, what you call the golden proportion. Yeah, the golden proportion. It's the way the human face is formed. It's the way, you know, the ratio of your hand to your arm, 
uh, your legs to your whole body. It's the 1.618 ratio that Leonardo da Vinci speaks about so affectionately in his Vitruvian Man uh, drawings. <clears throat> we A lot of architecture works that way. But in nature, it is the natural way in which energy rises out of chaos. In other words, if energy will constructively interfere with itself in this ratio, it will create nodes of reality. Waves will collapse into particles. This is how creation works. So if this is the case, and all of our consciousnesses are part of this number sequence, then we should be able to manipulate it consciously. Now, that's kind of a bold statement. How do I explain this to math students in a college algebra class? Well, we'll uh, I'll get you to explain how you ex- explain that to a college algebra <laughs> class, and, and I'll, I'll also find out how do we sign up for that algebra class, because I'd like to be in on that. Listen, Brooks Agnew is with us. We'll come back, and uh, we'll talk about unlocking the... Uh, the, uh, the secrets of mastering the laws of attraction. Rhonda Byrne got close in the secret, uh, but perhaps she didn't drill down deep enough and do the math. This is based on, on physics and nature, says uh, Brooks Agnew, our guest tonight on The Conspiracy Show. Hope you'll join the conversation as well at 416-360-0740 and out of town, toll-free from just about anywhere, 866-744-740. Curiosity? Or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Next week on the program, rock and roll investigator R. Gary Patterson and the author of Elvis Decoded, uh, Patrick Lacey. And Rosemary Ellen Guiley, of course, will return, the, uh, it being the second Sunday of the month with a, another paranormal investigation. Right now, Brooks Agnew is with us talking about how we can unlock the secrets and master the laws of attraction. Uh, and we're not talking about the book The Secret, although um, it was certainly an inspiration, but this is called Remembering the Future, The Physics of the Soul and Time Travel. And uh, so this, uh, this golden proportion, 1.618 to 1, uh, and, and you're, you're teaching this to an algebra class. Uh, so how do you do that? Well, what I did is instead of reciting it like the ABCs, I decided to do a little bit of exploration with this. So I took two random numbers. I took uh, 75 and 216. And I added the two numbers together, and of course you get 291, and I just picked up the Fibonacci process and treated it as though it was the sequence. So I added 216 to 291, you know, carried on, and, and uh, as I got out to the eighth number, the eighth iteration, I divided the seventh number into the eighth number, and I got... 1.618 to 1. I said, wow, that's got to be a coincidence. There's no way that works. I started randomly. I just started with two, two events that were completely unrelated to one another. But it happened over and over again. So then I said, well, okay, it has to happen just with integers. So I tried decimals, fractions, irrational numbers, imaginary numbers, 
in sequence. It worked every single time. So I said, well, if it works with these numbers, then it has to work with quanta of energy. And that's where it began to open the content of this new book for me. As I started to realize that along around the seventh or eighth iteration, order arose out of chaos. Manifestation began to gain momentum. We began to see constructive interference from the universe on top of the intention of the person putting in energy into the system. This was what Rhonda Byrne was talking about, but didn't know how to say it in mathematical terms. So now I had to say, okay, how do I, how do I prove this? I said, if this is the case, there has to be evidence in the real world from successful people. So I interviewed semi-pro baseball players that went pro. I interviewed pro-am players at golf that became pro. I interviewed real estate investors and investment banker. And I asked them without any prompting, they didn't know what I was working on, how many tries did it take you before you were in the zone, before it seemed like everything you did make, made money to where you made it to the pros, you, you began hitting the golf ball the way it was supposed to be hit to win. Remarkably enough, Richard, the number was eight. Oh, boy. It was eight tries, eight tries. And that's when I knew that these people had a way of listening to the effect of their intention on the universe, waiting for the cycle to come back around and striking it and doing it at the right moment. Now, this is interesting because it crosses into a principle of physics we call the resonance theory. This is basically says any component, let's talk about a 20-foot-long steel square tubing. Now, normally, if you were a 200-pound man, you could support this beam at either end. You could jump on it in the middle, and you wouldn't move it a quarter of an inch, even at 200 pounds. But you could fix a 10-pound weight in the center of this and oscillate that weight at exactly the right frequency. We call it the resonant frequency of the steel beam. Right, right. And you could make that beam wiggle like a noodle, like a spaghetti, up and down 20 inches, so violently that it would shake itself loose from the vice on either end, with just 10 pounds. Now, this was done on Mythbusters on TV, and it was incredible. This is how this, this is how an opera... This is how an opera singer would, would, uh, would shatter uh, a, a piece of crystal, by hitting the resonant frequency of the crystal. Or Royal Raymond Reif uh, supposedly was able to identify the resonant frequencies of just about every known pathogen and, and, and destroy the pathogen uh, with, with sound, with, 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 with uh, the, the frequency. That's right, because what happens is that resonant frequency... And I describe it in the book like if you take an acoustic guitar and you take it out of its case and lean it against the wall with the strings facing out in the room, and then you turn your stereo up really loud, somewhere in that music, it's going to sound like someone went over to that guitar and plucked one of those strings with a pick. Because some frequency in that music was at the resonant frequency of that string the string absorbed the energy and then re-reflected it as its own sound into the room. Now, we call that sympathetic resonance. 
This also was mentioned in the book, but not truly explained. How do you listen for the string of the guitar in the universe? If you've put your intention out there that you want to be something or you want to do something somewhere in the future, you've already put your energy out there in the future, and I'll explain that in just a moment. You've already created these sympathetic resonations forward and backward in time as, as far as time can go. Now you have to listen for that sympathetic resonance, and when that opportunity or that sound comes back around, you've got to learn when and how hard to strike it again. Make the phone call, send the email, make the move, make the investment, hit the ball at exactly the right moment. And how do you... Let's. I mean, why don't we take a time out? When we come back, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by this, and uh, and uh, I know that you know we want to we want to find out how, how we can use this and make sense of this. Uh, but when we come back, we'll find out how do we listen for that that string, that plucked string, or that sympathetic resonance. Where do we look for it out there in the universe? Uh, Brooks Agnew is my guest, the author of Remembering the Future: The Laws, sorry, the uh, <clears throat> the Physics of the Soul and time travel, mastering the, uh, the laws of attraction in ways that Rhonda Byrne couldn't have even imagined. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740. Or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Coming up in just over half an hour's time, Gordon Finn will be along to tell us about channeling. Uh, before we get to the, uh, the question that we left off, uh, and that has to do with, you know, uh, learning to identify that sympathetic resonance in the universe, uh, let, let me ask you, just go back to uh, the golden proportion and, and, and phi. Uh, does that number have anything to do? Was it was it instrumental in the construction of the pyramids, for example? Oh yes, the the number phi, the ratios between the the base of the pyramid, the angle of the pyramid, uh, uh, its arrangement, all had to do with this golden proportion. Uh, in fact, the height to the to the width of it was in the golden proportion. So yes, it was it was it was very instrumental in crafting and building the architecture of this edifice. And if, and if, we, uh, if we utilize that in, in architecture, let's say in the construction of our, our, of our homes, does that have anything to do with uh, en- enhancing this, this sympathetic resonance? That's a good question. You know, a lot of people ask me from time to time about geometries, especially sacred geometries and phi. Does it does it excite anything? Does it bring anything uh, into into focus, or does it does it enhance uh, the generation of energy? I think the jury's still out for me on that. Although I will say, lots of buildings, like the UN building, is built using the golden ratio. Each section of it is 1.618 times wider than it is tall. Interesting. All right. So back to that guitar string, to, uh, to sympathetic resonance or the resonant frequency. How do we, where do we look for it? How do, how do we identify it? Well, you look for it in 
in time. Now, we have a, a way of measuring time, which we use seconds and minutes and hours, and we use calendars and things like that. And we have a perspective of time relative to that. But we also have another perspective of time, which I like to call moments. You know, those uh, last few hours it takes for the one-hour math class to end that Dr. Agnew's teaching. Uh, it's the, uh, it's the uh, uh, short time that we get for lunch. We supposedly get 60 minutes, but it seems like it only lasts 10 minutes. These moments are, are completely uh, in the perspective or subjective to the person that's observing it. And as it turns out, this is a lot more true than you think. I was interviewing uh, a physicist, one of my colleagues, whose name is Dr. Ed Close. He wrote a great book called Transcendental Physics. And we were talking about time and, and light, because when we measure distances in space or time in space, we just are really measuring distance. We talk about light years or parsecs or, or solar units or astronomical units or lunar uh, distances. We're just talking about distance because we know light speed is constant. And I was talking about the photon that leaves the star Arcturus and reaches us. I said, you know, that photon's got to last for a long time, over eight light years. And it's got to negotiate all these particles and gravity fields and everything to reach Earth so that it will hit my eye and I can behold Arcturus in the heavens. And he said, well, actually, there is no path for the photon from Arcturus to Earth to your eye. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the photon's traveling at the speed of light. And at the speed of light, time slows down to zero. So there is no path. The photon leaves Arcturus and instantly arrives at your eye. I said, but if that's true, that means that the whole universe is compressed into one single moment. We're talking about a singularity. Right. At the speed of light, the whole universe is still a singularity. He said, that's exactly right. So I said, in one sense, we're saying that it's human consciousness that has slowed everything down so that space can expand back out to the distances that we behold. Actually, the universe is our creation. He said, well, yeah, in one respect, that's true. And I said, in another respect, that means that the entire timeline, which we physicists so affectionately call time some linear line from the distant past to this future, is actually just a dot. And we can behold the whole thing, which means if we put something out in the future, it's very easy to draw it right back to the present and make it happen. Wow. Uh, how do you draw that? <laughs> how do you make that drawing? <laughs> well, we, as a matter of therapy, we have a whole several sciences built on this. We can go back to our own past, or at least our perception of our own past. And we can fix things, misperceptions or scars or uh, effects that we've had upon ourselves by going back to our past and re-examining that past with a professional at our side helping us to interpret that in a way that's not so traumatic for us. And we can thus fix the present, which is really the future of that past. Right. Now, that can be done within certain latitude, because cho obviously choices that we've made have truncated our future from then until now. 
We didn't go to college. We decided to get married at 18. We decided to become, to, uh, you know, become a mechanic instead of a painter. Those kinds of things affect the present. But the future, especially the distant future, is wide open, what I call the potential of all potentialities. When we put our intention out into the future, it has exactly the same resonance, but then we humans have a tendency to do what I call draw future threads or do what I call a but-first list. Okay, I want to be a veterinarian, but first I got to do this, but first I got to do this, but first I got to do this. And we work our way all the way back to where we're standing right now, and then we say, all I have to do is follow this path and I'll be a veterinarian. Well, I, I will have to tell you that it's far more successful than Rhonda Burns' path to the future, but it still often doesn't work. Why? Because we draw the future threads. We don't listen for the resonance of the universe. What is resonating with that thought we've put out in the future? We have imposed our way that the universe is going to help us get there by supporting us with this resonant energy. And it doesn't. We're sitting outside the room or we turn the stereo all the way down. The guitar is not going to ring out. So how indeed do you listen to the universe so that you know which email to send, what job offer to take, what city to move to, what woman to date, these kinds of things are the most important decisions we make in our lives. And as I'm saying, you can't go back in the past and fix everything. You can fix some things, but you can't go back 40 years and say, gee, I should have got to college instead of tech school. Too late now. No, yeah, you have to start. Already... It's, it's like with, with time travel, you can only travel back in, in time at, uh, to the point where you turn the time machine on. Yeah, that's exactly right. Before then, it's... Uh, you know, it's the outer, outer limit, outer void. It's only in our imagination. But the future is wide open, especially if you'll let the universe generate these nodes of what I call constructive interference. These, a node is where random information can come together and create a bell curve of its own. It's sort of like a stepping stone in time. You'll know where to go because those things will resonate with your idea. Now, we live in a pretty noisy world, Richard. We got electronics going on, we got economics going on. I mean, we got we got chimichangas, uh, you know, supporting us on the road. Uh, Indeed. We, we live in a really a really noisy society. So how do we calm everything down where we can listen to what the ancients called the still small voice? And that's where I introduce a, a, a form of meditation that I use because I'm a busy guy. I can't spend four hours a day sitting around on a pillow meditating. I need something that gets me in quick and keeps me in a state where I can hear these things going on. That's why I use the flower of life meditation. It's 17 breaths. 17 breaths and you're in. 15 minutes a day or 15 minutes every other day and you can keep your finger on the guitar string. You know what's resonating with your future idea, and better, you know what's not resonating with it. So then you're able to uh, to what to pay attention. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed uh, over time 
is that uh, certain people come into your life at a certain particular point and you wonder, well, why did I meet that person right now? And it may not make sense for a while, but then you start to connect the dots and you, oh, well, that person introduced me to that person and then, then I found out about that job and, or what have you. Is, is, I mean, are those the, sort, the types of things you're, you, you say we have to pay attention to, the people that come into uh, our lives? The, yes, yes, exactly. Those are exactly the, the, the points that I'm talking about. You will have what seem to you to be chaotic, random events come into your life. But if you're listening and you're awake to what resonates with your idea, resonates with your future, you'll see the exact things that match what you're trying to manifest in the future. Now, that, that chaos arising... Uh, or that order, rather, arising out of chaos, uh, which might mean that promotion or you're becoming that self-actualized individual or, you know, wh- whatever it is you want to be or, or, or whatever it is you want to attain. Uh, um, that happens, you're saying, on the more likely uh, on the eighth attempt? I mean, how do you count back and realize, OK, this was my eighth kick at the can? Well, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. Normally, when we look back at the past, we expect to see a straight line. Yes, I can see the path that I came down. Uh, there are my footprints in the snow or the sand, and I can see where I came from to here. But most of the time, when we're successful, that path in the past is very jagged and seemingly, if you look at it from the outside, seemingly very unrelated. Like, what possessed you to go into that Hardee's that day and eat there by yourself? And the guy in the table next to you said, man, I really wish I could find an engineer that knew how to do this. And you said, but uh, that happens to me with my field of expertise. Really? Can you come with me to the plant? Boom. <laughs> come on. Right. You didn't plan to go to that, that fast food place and sit down and meet that guy. It just happened. That's what I'm talking about. That's what resonates with the universe, because he is feeling the resonance to go to that fast food place at that moment as well. He doesn't really know why, but uh, that, that's how these things come together. And you have to be aware and awake of these things. If you go through life silent and you're not, you're not listening to these things, or you go through life noisy and overpowering everything, you're going to miss it all. I have a good friend who I asked, uh, what, what is his dream? He said, I want a million dollars. I said, why? Why do you want a million dollars? He said, well, I want to move my family from the Philippines to the U.S., and I don't want to have to worry where my next meal is coming from. So I said, well, then really what, you're, what you really want to have happen is you want to move your family to the U.S., and you don't want to worry where your next meal is coming from. What does a million dollars have to do with that? Nothing. So if you're concentrating on the million dollars, your family is going to be in the, in the Philippines till you grow old and die. Excellent point. All right, Brooks. We'll take another time out, come back. I also want to talk about the power of intention and how that figures into this, uh, specifically the experiments by William Tiller at uh, Stanford University in which people were actually changing the past with their thoughts. I'll get your take on that as well. 416-360-0740 and toll-free from out of town, 866-740-4740. 
Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Talking the golden proportion here with Brooks Agnew. It turns out even the dimensions of our teeth are based on phi. The front two incisor teeth form a golden rectangle with a phi ratio in the height to the width. The ratio of the width of the first tooth to the second tooth from the center is also phi. The ratio of the width of the smile to the third tooth from the center is phi as well. And on and on it goes. Uh, so much of uh, what we perceive as, as, as beauty is all tied up in the golden proportion or phi. Uh, Brooks, um, those, in, uh, those studies at Stanford University, William Tiller, and uh, where people were actually changing... Uh, I'm not sure the specifics of the study. It was a series of numbers or something that were, was contained in a black box, and they were actually people with the power of their thoughts were able to change those numbers. Or do I have that right? Yes. Yes. There, there is a, a classic method. We call it random number generators. Um, there's a statistical fact. This is an observation that when populations are large, they tend to form a normal distribution with the exact center point between the two extremes being the center of a bell curve. You'll have some in the upper uh, numbers and some in the lower numbers. And as they get closer to the center, the population gets higher and higher. So if you have a random number generator that's randomly generating numbers between 1 and 1,000, you're going to see a node at 499 or 500. That's a known fact. Now. What he did is he commissioned in his study people that showed uh, a, even a mild propensity at being able to focus their intention for a period of time. He focused these people on a particular random number generator to try to push the numbers higher. And lo and behold, repeatedly, repeatedly, this is really important in statistics, the population was pushed not to 500. 502, 503, 505 or higher consistently, or down to 495, 496, and lower. The odds against this are astronomical because these are what we call mutually exclusive events. So we're talking about millions to one that this could happen. And once you take repeatability, you take it to billions and hundreds of billions to one that the odds that this could happen. It was mathematical proof that these people's intention were having an effect on these random number generators. Now it gets even more interesting because hard records of these random number generator records had been generated going back for years. So they took the team and they focused on one of the hard records that had been done some years before on a certain day. They concentrated on that event and they went back to that date, opened them in an envelope, and looked at the record. And sure enough, the random number generator had generated a, a average that was either higher or lower, repeatedly, exactly as the group had manifested. Now, the evidence seemed to point to this unobserved, hitherto unobserved record could be reobserved in the future by this group 
and thus pushed with their intention to give a different result in the past. And when read in the future, sure enough, that record showed the effect of their intention. What does this mean to you? What does this mean? Well, it means to me that humans are at least interdimensional beings. We can very easily behold past events with such clarity we can almost smell the apple pie from when we were children. And if we can do that, we can also behold the future with such clarity. I can tell you from business experience that those business leaders that can envision what their company should be doing five years from now, they will be successful. If they can't form that vision for their companies and they are going forward in a random order, they will not be successful. Let's grab a quick call from Keith in Rochester, New York. Hello, Keith. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, sir. Uh, your author, uh, I'm going to pronounce it Fabonacci, I've been using those numbers for years, and I'm not lying. When I've handicapped, uh, when I'm saying facetiously, uh, when it's termed the vernacular, uh, the ponies, uh, some of my handicapping, I've even determined every horse's position running in the race and so far as finishing position. And the problem is, is getting the algorithms. Uh, so, some years back, I approached a small computer company in Maine to get software on this, and I had a real dickens of a time explaining myself. And when you, the host, stated uh, that the author of The Secret didn't even uh, have an idea of what she was approaching, that's true. Uh, we, we don't teach this uh, financial knowledge, and even uh, when the market's opening tomorrow in turmoil, um, with our country's credit the rating being lowered, we got into this turmoil. I think the author would agree because uh, we don't teach this higher math just like uh, when he's doing it in his math classes. But I, I have the IRS statements to show for it, internal revenue, uh, that I've gotten uh, some jackpots using these Fibonacci numbers. And I would say in closing to the author, you've got to encourage people to develop algorithms. Don't talk in complete generalities. Get people educated do as I was doing without any bragging, get them to understand equations and algorithms. That's how you get ahead in life. All right, Keith, thank you for that. Uh, Brooks, did you want to respond? Well, yeah, I mean, an algorithm is, is a complex function. Uh, in, in simple algebra, we use what's called a stepwise function. It's, it's how uh, uh, electronic throttles work in cars. We take to, to, to establish a fuel-air mixture to accelerate a car. But an algorithm is an equation that takes multiple inputs uh, in multiple forms and puts them in one equation and allows them to generate one answer. And uh, it's, it's very complex mathematics, but uh, once you create the algorithm, it's a little like an engine. You feed sausage and onions and heat and time, and you get meatballs, or you get, uh, you know, you get... The, the end product that you're looking for. It's a machine, like a mathematical machine. You put the right inputs in, and you get an answer. Uh, in, in, let's personalize it. Uh, if someone wants to, uh, you know, become a uh, uh, an actor, and put, putting this into practice, uh, I mean, obviously they're going to go out and they're going to do, they're going to take the classes and they're going to go to rehearsals and they're going to uh, do the cattle call, the casting calls, and they're going to they're going to practice and hone their craft. But uh, in addition to that, I mean, they're going to put these intentions out there. 
uh, waveforms, uh, is that what we, we would call them? Uh, I mean, how do they do that? that that's a good question. Um, it, for humans, we have a, a, a clear ability to be able to envision things. Now, when, when we envision this, you know, you say you want to be an actor. Well, that's pretty general. If you say, well, I want to be a dramatic actor, I want to be a, a comedic actor, I want to be a romantic actor. In fact, I want to be in this type of movie with this kind of star or this kind of co-star with this kind of director. Now you're getting the details down to where you're getting the texture, the color, the smell, the timing, the force behind what it is you want. Not just a general thing, I want to be an actor. You can be an actor serving tables in Hollywood, but that doesn't mean you're in a film. What kind of film? What kind of money do you want to make? How famous do you want to be? How much money do you want to make? Those are the kind of details that you need to put into a full vision of being an actor or an actress, got it. Just okay. Hollywood. Okay, so then you're just you're 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 thinking about that every day in the shower while you're brushing your teeth. You're focusing on this, even obsessing about it. Not necessarily, because that's kind of white noise to the universe. Focusing on it at exactly the right moment or at regular times is much more effective than focusing on it with abandon to everything else. In the book, I call this holding on to the bell. You've gone out to the future, you've hit the bell with your hammer, and then you're holding on to it. You have to be able to release. And that's what this meditation really trains you to do. Because in this meditation, there's a release breath. It is where you've struck the idea in the universe. Now let go of the bell and let it ring. This is the hardest thing for people to do. You've got to release that, really release it, and let it resonate with the universe. Because it's not the thing that you're going to hold on to or seek after. You're going to seek after what's sympathetically resonating with your idea out there. And those are the things you're going to hit along the way. So those those uh, waveforms are acting upon this this vast field of potentiality uh, that is our universe and is then creating, among other things, matter that is, is, uh, is going to move us along in the direction of that goal. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's exactly the idea. Now, when we look out in space at night, you see all the points of light. Well, we know now as astrophysicists that only makes up about 5% of the matter that makes up the universe. The rest of it is some chaotic soup which we call dark matter, which actually could just be super bright, and we just can't behold it. But it's probably chaotic. Now, when stars come together, this is organized matter, and they're pumping out silicon and oxygen and nitrogen and iron into our universe, which makes up the higher-order elements that we have in our universe. But the rest of the universe is imperceptible to us. It's there, but it's so chaotic it doesn't manifest itself as matter in our universe. What we want, we don't want to live a dream life. We want to bring the dream life into this third dimension so that we can act upon it. So that, uh, for all we know, that dark matter out there, that uh, 95% of the universe that we know nothing about, that is the, the raw material of which dreams are made. 
Yeah, I, I actually call it the subconscious of the universe. Mm. Interesting. Listen, uh, Brooks, uh, time is tight here. I want to uh, um, just park that for a moment and uh, perhaps come back to it in another show and just get a quick update on uh, the, uh, the uh, North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. Sure. Uh, as you know, we've been working on this since uh, late 2006 with the unfortunate and untimely demise of Stephen Curry, who was our previous uh, expedition leader. Uh, late 2006, I was elected as the expedition leader. So this expedition is sea-based. We're going to sail from Murmansk, Russia, to a point near the North Magnetic Pole. We're going to be surveying about 10,000 square miles, looking for either an opening in the seafloor or an opening into the inner Earth from the surface. Now, this is a legend. It's probably one of the oldest legends that we have in humanity. More people know about the hollow earth than knew about Middle Earth before the movies came out. And this is really the ultimate mythbuster. What really blew my mind, Richard, is that no one's ever been, except for Admiral Byrd's legendary flight over the North Pole. Nobody's ever sailed these waters. Hmm. This is the first time film has ever been shot in this area. So it's very expensive. It's about a $2 million expedition, and that doesn't count the post-production costs. That's just to get there and shoot all the film. Right. We intend to do 15 days, 24 hours a day of all kinds of experiments, water measurement, air measurement, core samples off the bottom, measures of magnetism. But we also intend to address the Indiana Jones aspect of this, and that is the idea that there might be an opening into the inner Earth and I can tell you definitively, as a scientist, if there is a void there, there will be life. Amazing. And, uh, of course, that w- one of my favorite books growing up was the Jules Verne uh, book, Journey to the uh, Interior of the Earth, and, of course, later made into a great movie with, um, I believe it was uh, a great British actor. Was it David Mason? And uh, Dork. Yes, yes. So, uh, and, and, and as you have pointed out, there is some, although the idea is sort of uh, poo-pooed by mainstream uh, science who are clinging to the tectonic plates theory of the, uh, of the formation of the Earth, uh, there is some interesting data that has come out from the U.S. Geological Survey, which tends to support a hollow Earth, correct? Yes. Uh, the USGS has been collecting uh, vibrational data every time there's a major earthquake on the planet. This this is how we know that there's been an earthquake in in Haiti or Chile or Japan. But since 1996, all of these listening stations around the planet have been tied together in real time. That means that every time there's a big quake, it sends the vibrations all the way through the planet, and the other listening stations pick up those vibrations and create a kind of cat scan of the earth well all this data has been piling up but there's been no real analysis of it until dr y sessions at washington university got a grant employed very cheaply of course some grad students to go through all that data Six hundred thousand seismograms were the numbers were crunched and what he published stunned the world he discovered another ocean underneath the crust the size of the Atlantic Ocean. Underneath the surface, or the, underneath the floor of, of the, the ocean uh, bottom is another ocean. Right. That's right. 
what they detected in these seismograms were the damping waves of another sea with waves crashing against the shore underneath the crust. Remarkable. And this, uh, coupled with the discovery of uh, this bizarre, in many instances, uh, bizarre marine life that nobody seems to know where it came from, uh, suggests perhaps this hollow earth. Well, the, the theory is that if there is a hollow earth, there's an opening in the crust, then the inner ocean and our ocean are blending. That's why we're going to be taking water samples and checking for differences in salinity and crystallinity and microbial life. But if that sea vent exists, then mature life should be able to swim between the oceans on those strong currents. Well, since 2007, when the, this shelf broke off after, I don't know how many years of global warming, the shelf became unstable, and the wind put a load against it such that it really broke off. This continent-sized piece of ice opened the Northwest Passage for the first time in, I don't know, 200,000 years. Since then, there's been an explosion in very strange marine life. We've, we see frilled sharks, which have been extinct for millions of years, being caught in nets. We see what is normally a 25 to 30 species jump in, uh, in ray, sea rays uh, uh, netted in Manila to 1,500 new species of rays. And this indicates that we have a, some kind of biological input into our oceans from another source. And so who knows, uh, if you find that inner passage, what you'll find down there. Woolly mammoths, uh, as I believe the secret diaries of Admiral Byrd uh, revealed, uh, uh, who knows? Well, we'll um, we'll uh, we'll follow this uh, up with you um, in the in the months to come, Brooks. Get uh, more updates as that uh, magical date approaches sometime in 2012. And uh, in the meantime, we'd love to have you back on and, and get uh, further in, drill down deeper into uh, the uh, the golden proportion and uh, your wonderful book, Remembering the Future. Appreciate your time as always. Uh, it's my pleasure. If they want to get the book, they can go to the website, rememberingthefuturebook.com. They'll not only get it signed, but they'll get the audio version for free. So if you're not a great reader, don't worry about it. I read it for you. <laughs> Excellent. Rememberingthefuturebook.com. Terrific. Thanks, Brooks. Thank you very much, Richard. All right. We'll talk soon. When we come back. Gordon Finn, paranormal researcher, author, student of Eastern mysticism, and practiced in the art of channeling or spirit communication. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, 
AM 740. Uh, during that last commercial break, you, uh, you may have uh, heard a spot for our dear friends uh, down at uh, Conspiracy Culture, uh, Patrick uh, and Kadena. And uh, they are presenting this uh, new uh, documentary uh, called Kubrick's Odyssey. And uh, Jay Widener, or Wadener, uh, will be in attendance, the filmmaker. And this is uh, at the Toronto Underground Cinema, which is uh, in the Queen Spadina area of uh, Toronto. And that's Saturday, August the 20th at 9.30 p.m. Well, next week on the show, I, I neglected to mention, uh, on the 14th, I'll have Jay on the program talking about uh, Kubrick's Odyssey, uh, part one. And uh, this focuses on, on Kubrick and uh, the Apollo space program, in, in which he presents some pretty compelling evidence of how Stanley Kubrick directed the Apollo moon landings. And he reveals that the film 2001, A Space Odyssey, was not only a retelling of Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick's novel, but also a research and development project that assisted Kubrick in the creation of the Apollo moon footage. The creation of the Apollo moon footage. You heard me correctly. And uh, in, the, uh, in the film, uh, Kubrick's Odyssey, he also explores Kubrick's film, The Shining, and shows that the film is, in actuality, the story of Kubrick's personal travails as he secretly worked on the Apollo footage for NASA. Are you connecting the dots here? The idea is that Kubrick essentially created the Apollo moon landing, that it was, in fact, a hoax. Uh, so that'll be interesting. In conversation with the filmmaker behind Kubrick's Odyssey, that's uh, next week on The Conspiracy Show. All right. Uh, my next guest was uh, born in Glasgow, Scotland. In October of 1952, educated at Glasgow Academy, he moved to Toronto, Canada after the death of his father in March of 1968. And then, about 1970, his discovery of popular spiritualist books such as Life in the World Unseen uh, helped him put into perspective certain haunting dreams in which his father would say, try to imagine I've gone on a long holiday. Further readings in spiritualism, theosophy, and the Western esoteric tradition slowly expanded his understanding of the mysteries leading to such modern teaches, teachers as uh, Seth and David Spangler. His interest in the mystic and esoteric bred a fascination with the entire range of paranormal phenomena. He studied the world of researchers, psychics, healers, and channels without ever imagining he might become one himself. In the late 1990s, his lifetime of sporadic lucid dreams exploded into a four-month extravaganza of near-nightly adventures throughout the plains with a variety of guides of whom Henry seemed to be the ringleader. After the usual anxieties of the what-will-people-think variety, he plunged into the narrative which became eternal life and how to enjoy it. And a great pleasure to welcome back to The Conspiracy Show the no BS guru, Gordon Finn. Gordon, how are you? I'm well tonight. Thank you, Richard. Channeling, spirit communication. What specifically is, is uh, the definition or what do we mean by channeling? What do you mean by channeling? I mean communicating telepathically with spirits, i.e. non-physical entities. And 
does this happen? Uh, I mean, how is this separate uh, or, or different, uh, a channeler, from a medium or a psychic? It's, it's, I don't really think it's that different, Richard. It's just a modern term that has come into use in the last, I would say, 50 years. It is essentially mediumship. Okay, but in, in, when you're channeling, uh, uh, someone, if it's Dennis Hopper or Natasha Richardson or, J- or John Mack, uh, uh-huh. do you, in a sense, become possessed by that specific spirit and then they talk through you? I generally don't do that. I generally uh, hear them, how shall I say, uh, speaking in my head or giving me certain ideas and feelings, which I then put into a language that seems appropriate for that, that person. I, I, I don't voice their voice, if that's what you're asking. So in other words, your voice doesn't change, you, you don't become, you don't, you're not entering into a trance and these sorts of things. I wouldn't call what I do trance-like. I would call it a slightly altered state of consciousness, and I'm not taken over by the spirit that's communicating, no. How do you verify, I mean, in your own mind, that it is Dennis Hopper or some other actor or, or as I mentioned, uh-huh. John Mack? How, how do you know that they're dialing into you? How do you separate the noise, if you will? Yes, well, of course, that's a very good question and it applies to all the channeling that I do. If, if someone comes to see me and asks to speak to their, or, you know, their deceased mother or father, which, you know, often happens... Um, or whether it appears to be Dennis Hopper or Natasha Richardson, I have to use my own inner sense of discernment um, in the same way that in a conversation on the physical plane with someone or anyone that you may meet, you discern by their uh, attitude, their voice patterns, and their um, body language if they're being genuine. Now, of course, there's no body language with a spirit, but you still use that same sense of discernment. And uh, is this something that you, I mean, uh, is this innate uh, with you, or did you learn how to do it, or is there some, I mean, is there something particular about the way that your your mind and brain might be constructed in terms of sensing different vibrations, uh, dimensions that others don't access? Um, I believe that anyone, given the desire and the willingness to practice and submit to the experience, can channel. Um, I entered it through the back door, as, uh, in a sense, by um, studying and uh, reading books by psychics and uh, getting to know the field, and then through a, a sort of a a process that happened to me during the 1990s through um, lucid dreaming, out-of-body travel, and also, as I may have mentioned to you before, spending a lot of time inside crop circles in England, um, I seemed to raise my vibration, my personal vibration, to the point where I was able to do this. How do you prepare? Uh, let's say, uh, I, I, I understand tonight you, you, you will do some channeling. Uh, I mean, how do, how do you prepare for something like that? Well, um, 
before your show started tonight, I did listen to your last guest with great interest, by the way, but um, before the show started, I spent some time in in, uh, my darkened bedroom and meditated for a while and uh, just tried to get in tune uh, and uh, eliminate any, you know, as you say, noise and whatever else happened uh, during the day and just, you know, sort of get focused. And I put out a couple of messages as to uh, who might be ready to communicate, and I got a couple of answers. And uh, do you recall, can you take me back to your first uh, spirit communication when somebody, someone from the other side came in sort of loud and clear, and you thought, oh, boy, here we go, this is it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, during my process of spiritual growth and transformation in the 90s that I just referred to, uh, Richard, I had um, many interesting lucid dream and out-of-body experiences. Uh, uh, but the one that related to mediumship the most, and this um, is covered in memoirs and books by other spiritual journeyers, if you like, um, but you may not have heard of it before, but there's this phenomenon that sometimes happens upon waking in the morning. And what what seems to happen is a loud voice addresses you in your bedroom and says something to catch your attention just as you're waking up. And for me, this happened uh, one morning. And I knew about the phenomenon ahead of time, but you know, I, I didn't realize it was going to happen to me. But as I woke up one morning, a rather loud voice in my bedroom said... And your life as a medium will now begin. Wow, it was that <laughs> it was that succinct and that dramatic. Uh, yeah, I was. I was. As I say, I'd read about the phenomenon in other people's books, but when it happened to me, it was just as wild and crazy as you might think it would be. Gordon Finn is uh, with us, and um, we're talking about channeling spirit communication. Now, uh, Gordon, you and I have talked. You know my my spiritual tradition, an Orthodox uh-huh. Christian. Uh, is this something I need to be wary of? I mean, w- uh, uh, I guess assuage my apprehensions about spirit yeah. communication as an Orthodox Christian. Well, it's it's my um, belief and uh, drawing from my own experience and the experience of others that I've either met personally or you know read their books, including you know famous people like James Van Praagh and John Edwards. Um, one is trained for this sort of thing spiritually. It may seem to happen all of a sudden, like like the sudden sort of thing I just mentioned, but you're actually being prepared by spirit, by your spirit guides and various practices that you engage in when you're out of body at night, so that when you actually start to do it, you are ready and you have the discernment not to be fooled by mischievous or um, nasty spirits who would lie and who would uh, feed you false, you know, false truth. Um, and I, this is covered in the Bible, a line about um, discern, you know, uh, what is it, discern the spirits that they be of God. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm getting it slightly wrong. Well, I think there's a um, there's a warning in the Bible about conjuring, yeah, uh, conjuring versus spirit communication. As I mentioned off the top of the show, I mean we you know we learn 
about the communion with saints, which is certainly spirit communication. Mm-hmm. Um, but conjuring, I guess, is a different matter. Are you conjuring or are you simply open? If they want to talk, you're open to it. Um, I'm actually, uh, I do a bit of both. I'm, I can be a passive recipient and I can, uh, especially, uh, I can go out and seek spirits. And when I'm doing spirit rescue or spirit retrieval, I do go out and seek that troubled earthbound ghost that needs to be helped to be moved on. So I, I, I do both sides of the, the coin. Why do certain, um, certain deceased individuals uh, sort of dial into Gordon Finn, and, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about, you know, the late actor Dennis Hopper, who was one of my faves, uh, Natasha uh-huh. Richardson, who who uh, left this earth in a real hurry and totally unexpected after what seemed like a, a very innocuous little fall in a ski yeah. hill. Uh, and, um, uh, or, you know, the great uh, um, alien abduction researcher, uh, UFO researcher, John Mack. I mean, why, why do they... Why are they sort of attached to Gordon Finn? Well, I, uh, I'm. One answer I would give you is that their gui- their spirit guide would talk to one of my spirit guides because they would have a desire to communicate uh, to as wide a uh, possible public as they could get, and because I'd been putting. Uh, a number of my channelings on YouTube for a few years. This would be, uh, and, and uh, some of them, the John Macon ended up in my second book, More Adventures in Eternity. Um, they would be aware that they could reach a slightly larger audience. I mean, they could reach an even larger audience if they went to someone like James Van Bra or John Edwards. But um, they came to me uh, and knowing that I would be putting this stuff on the Internet. So I think that's part of it. Uh, another part of it is I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm out there. I'm not your regular sort of medium. I will talk about things and communicate honestly with spirits who have, shall we say, not the usual message to give. And um, so I'm, I'm known in that world as being someone. Who will who will who will practice and perform the unusual? So, Gordon, how do you want to uh, uh, approach this for the next, uh, say, f- you know, forty forty five minutes? Uh, do you want to um, uh, to relay some messages from from uh, from some of these uh, individuals that have passed on? Do you want uh, to people to call in with questions? How how do you think is best to approach this? Well, that's that's a good question, Richard. Um, we, Perhaps we could do a bit of both. I mean, I'm not uh, feeling any uh, great urge from anyone. I did get a message that uh, earlier, a couple of hours ago, that Dennis Hopper would be uh, ready to speak a little, or speak, th- you know, speak to me, and then I would uh, convey it. Um, he's uh, very, uh, still very. Uh, excited about his transition uh, even after these few months uh, all right well why don't we uh, come back and see if we can't um, uh, ask dennis hopper a few questions okay all right gordon finn my guest here on the conspiracy show if you'd like to get in on the conversation if you have a question or comment generally about uh, channeling or maybe you have a question for dennis hopper or natasha richardson or the late great john mack 
uh, we can uh, have Gordon field those as well. 416-360-0740 and 866-744-740. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Gordon Finn is with us. You know, Dennis Hopper was, uh, as I say, one of my favorite actors. Uh, Of course, most notably came to light with... uh, uh, alongside Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda back in about 1967 and uh, uh, the movie Easy Rider and uh, went on to make countless uh, pictures, um, battled, had, had battled his demons to be sure, uh, drug and alcohol, uh, and then sort of resurfaced in the mid-80s, I think, alongside Gene Hackman for um, uh, a movie called Hoosiers. And... Um, really uh, revitalized his career and then uh, passed away about a year ago after a, a battle with prostate cancer. Now, Gordon, what was interesting to me, and, um, and I don't know if Dennis Hopper is there, but what I found somewhat sad, really, was that nasty business towards the end of his life, literally on his deathbed, he divorced uh, his, his, uh, his wife, I'm not sure which wife it was, number three or number four, Victoria Hopper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as I say, this was basically on his deathbed. What can he tell us about that? I mean, why would he, why would he do that? Okay, I'm I'm just tuning in right now. He no regrets that, and has tried to communicate that regret to uh, the lady in question. Uh, I'm not sure how successful he's been because uh, spirits often try to communicate these things to the living and uh, with varying degrees of success. Um, He's saying that he was influenced by his, what he's calling his earthly ego. And he feels that he's a much different person now, a much more spiritual person, a much more um, giving, loving, uh, less inclined to be uh, uh, driven by uh, anger and resentment and grudges. And uh, he's certainly not happy about what happened in the last little while with his uh, wife. And... Uh, knows that he can't undo it, but would uh, surely like to if he could. He had a, uh, you know, a brilliant acting career, but he did have, uh, as I say, he battled his demons, drugs and alcohol, uh-huh. and um, um, married five times, actually. The, his last uh-huh. wife of 14 years was his fifth wife. But what, I guess, what did that mean in terms of where, where he is now? I mean, how did his actions here on Earth... Uh, determine which plane of existence he is now on. Okay. Um, As he understands it now, 
and this is with the help of uh, guides who have uh, educated them somewhat in the ways of spirits. The energy that he put in to his acting, the passion and commitment and energy that he put into his acting has propelled him in the afterlife because the afterlife excites him the same way that uh, various uh, acting roles and film projects excited him. Very early on in his career, he he he, um, he started alongside uh, James Dean. He um, he had an appearance in Rebel Without a Cause. Yes. Is he in connect? Is he in contact with with James Dean on the other side? He says he is. Yes. What, did, what is have he? engaged in some uh, um, some acting? Uh, what what sounds like to me the way he's describing it? Some theater. There's, I, sh- I should mention, Richard, all the art, artistic activities that we know on Earth are, are replicated and continued in spirit. So, on the other side, just sort of a general question about uh-huh. about what life is like, uh, uh-huh. or the afterlife is like. I mean, do do we return to a physical body? Uh, you know, is he a young, healthy Dennis Hopper on the other side? Yes, he is a young, healthy Dennis Hopper. And uh, again, um, pursuing the arts, painting, acting, just as he yes. was here on Earth. Yes, he's he's fascinated with uh, how the power of thought can be immediately translated into image and activity in spirit, without the uh, intercession of uh, you know uh, technological tools. Well, what's it, what's it like where he is, it, and where is he exactly? Um, okay, I'm getting the uh, impression that he's in the astral plane version of California, uh, in an area that is like. Okay, what am I, I'm not that good on California geography, but I'm I'm getting uh, the uh, the uh, sea coast area south of Los Angeles is somewhat like that. So, not much different than 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 uh, here on Earth, except I, I mean, I, I'm guessing what the, are the colors more brilliant? Uh, it never rains. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it it is more radiant. It is more beautiful. It is more brilliant in 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 ways that he finds uh, hard to describe. And I should say, most people do find most communicators find it hard to describe. Um, because it, it seems to involve the use of vocabulary, sort of vocabulary that we don't really have here. But um, um, I mean, there is rain, but it's not. Um, how can I put it? Rain that it's not rain that interferes with your life. <laughs> That's what he's right. saying. And and who I mean who populates this this astral plane version of of uh, California for example I mean is it is it is it uh, hustling bustling like you know Los Angeles County are there uh, is there a lot of traffic are there tall buildings uh, uh, tall buildings yes traffic not much uh, because of uh, in the astral plane you can either teleport to where you want to go to immediately, or you can fly. So the only sort of vehicular traffic tends to be 
uh, people who uh, have classic cars for the joy of having classic cars. And uh, who who else is he hanging out with uh, besides James Dean on the other side? Oh, okay. I'm getting a whole host of uh, people from the acting and film community here, but I'm not can't see if I can slow them down enough to get names. Um, uh, oh shoot! I'm not getting any names, but he's saying uh, there's lots of people here and uh, people that passed before him. And uh, oh, wait a minute, Natalie Wood. There's one. Right, that would make sense. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, see, my brain's interfering now, Richard. My brain is now trying to think of people that passed before him rather than listening to what he's he's telling me. I'm, I apologize for that. Does he enjoy these sort of the, these uh, interviews? I guess, for lack of a better word, is he? Uh, does it take him away from what he'd rather be doing? I mean, how does he feel about communicating with this side? He's he's very happy and joyful about it. He says because he's so jazzed and excited about the possibilities of life on the afterlife, which he never fully believed in when he was here. And to, uh, he sort of secretly wished that it were true, but he didn't really believe it. And, he, and as, as I said in the, in the thing that we did that's up on YouTube, he, he definitely had uh, some uh, out-of-body experiences when he was doing psychedelics in, in the 60s and 70s that, that took him to places that he now realizes were part of the spirit world, but he just thought they were amazing hallucinations back at the time. Uh, when he passed, did he receive that sort of life in review uh, alongside a spirit guide? I mean, did he sit down and watch sort of a home movie of his life and review that? He said he's he's done part of that. He says it's 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 pretty grueling, and um, because you're up face to face with all your own shortcomings. And he said, "By God, have I got a lot?" And um, so he says, "You do it. You can do it in bits and pieces." And so he's he's done some of that, but not all of it. And um, is he is he getting ready to reincarnate, or when will that happen? Uh, he. <laughs> having way too much fun to reincarnate now. Is that a choice, a personal choice? I mean, can they stay on that plane or can they reincarnate? Is that up to the individual? Um, he's not too sure, um, but, I, I, okay, he's turning and talking to his guide right now. Um, his guide is telling him, yes, that it's purely a matter of choice. You can come back or you can stay. Who else is um, uh, are we able to contact? First of all, I guess we should thank uh, Dennis Hopper for right, uh, making yes, an yes, appearance. I'm, I'm doing that right now, and he's uh, he's giving that sort of characteristic uh, big smiley laugh. He, yeah, and uh, he's happy to. All right. Well, so long, Dennis, and it was great talking to you. I'm a, I'm a fan. Uh, <laughs> listen, we'll um, we'll take a time out. We'll come back, and um, we'll take a few calls, and uh, maybe we can have you uh, get in touch with the late great actress Natasha Richardson. Ah, yes. Gordon Finn, my guest, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Gordon Finn stays with us the author of Eternal Life and How to Enjoy It, among others. 
uh, and here um, talking about channeling or spirit communication. Um, Natasha Richardson, mm-hmm. tremendous uh, acting lineage there, of course, the, uh, the daughter of uh, Vanessa Redgrave, uh, mm-hmm. granddaughter of Michael Redgrave, and uh, rather tragic end, uh, just uh, not too far from uh, Montreal back a few years ago, 2009, I think. She, uh, she fell. Uh, I think she was, on a, she was learning to ski, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Sustained a very slight uh, head injury. Uh, and then she had what was, that injury was followed by what they call a lucid interval when she, was, she seemed to be fine. She was talking and acting normally. Paramedics in an ambulance which responded to the accident were told they weren't needed. She refused medical attention. She returned to her hotel room, and about three hours later, she was taken to a local hospital complaining of a, head ca- a headache, and uh, mm-hmm. she died. Mm-hmm. Um, is Natasha Richardson there? Yes. Natasha, what can you tell us uh, about... Um, what happened to you? She's telling me she was uh, completely unaware of this, the, the, the serious sort of potential of her injury because she didn't really feel very much. She felt as though she'd bumped her head. And um, although she had been somebody or more than one person advised her to seek medical attention, she felt that she knew better and... Uh, and uh, basically acted from ego and wouldn't take advice, and now, of course, completely regrets that. When you're taken so suddenly, and I'm guessing there must be a lot of unresolved, you know, you think back, what was the last, what were her last words to her husband, Liam Neeson, and, and uh, uh-huh. uh, these sorts of things. I mean, is that, is it, is it painful, uh, Waking up in the in the in the hereafter, or are all of those negative feelings sort of washed away once you're in the uh, that astral plane? Uh, her experience was one of pain and regrets, and uh, an intense sense of being very foolish. Has she attempted to get in touch with uh, Liam Neeson? Yes. Was she successful? Uh, she believe. Okay. Uh, I'm getting that she has, uh, as many spirits are, uh, Richard, she was shown how to enter the dreams of those she left behind. And she believes that she did that successfully after several tries. Hmm. Does she have... Um Anything? Well, where is she? Is she also in sort of the astral plane version of sunny California, or is she somewhere else? Um, I'm getting somewhere, a sort of an astral plane uh, somewhere in Britain. You understand, Richard, there's an astral plane version of every country on the planet. Are you able to, and in the astral plane, are you able to travel from one astral plane version of a country to another, so from California to London, England, and so forth? Yes, she says you you most definitely can. It's it's quite easy. And what is she doing there on the other side? <laughs> I'm laughing because she laughed. She said she said something like, "Oh, I'm afraid I'm still acting." <laughs> she's almost apologetic, like she, she I think she feels like she should be doing something more important. 
and I'm trying to say to her, no, no, that's 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 great. You're 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 entertaining people. You're making them happy. Why not? And I mean, how do how do they fill their days besides uh, acting? I mean, you would think that on the other side, in the astral plane, I don't know, there, there would be some more something more significant. I mean, or do they just carry on as if they were still alive here on Earth? She says uh, she's communicating that. Uh, there are many ways to go about leading your life in the afterlife. And uh, she continues very similarly to how she lived here, um, engaging in uh, theater. And she says she's getting very much more interested in dance now. And what else? Um... And she says you can spend a lot of time, although she says there's no real time there, but just for the sake of conversation, you can spend a lot of time being shown the uh, kind of the, the, the actual fabric of existence of how the astral plane actually functions uh, as opposed to the physical plane. Mm. All right. I want to thank... Uh... Natasha Richardson for joining us here through uh, Gordon Finn. And, uh, Gordon, we can take some calls here. People have some comments, questions oh, yes. about uh, communication, or uh, uh, channeling, rather. Uh, uh, Betty is in Milton. Good morning, Betty. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Betty. Hello. Hi, go ahead. You're on. Hi. No, uh, you had mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that... Uh, after you die, you're, uh, you go back to being your young self again. Yes. And uh, I guess it was about six months after my husband had passed away that I had taken the dog, his dog, which you never saw one without the other, out to a field to run around because I was unable to walk her. Uh And she was having a good time in this field running around, and finally I called her, and she almost got to me, and she turned and she looked away down the end of the, the field, Mm. And just went crazy, just, oh, happy, and ran down the field. And there was a figure standing at the end of the field, and uh, the dog ran and jumped on this figure. And it, my eyes, it was just like, um, oh, um, you know, when the camera zooms in? Mm-hmm. And uh, it was my husband. But it was the young husband. Yes, yes, of and, course. You know, I often wondered um, what this meant. Now, if I tell you that about a week later the dog died, uh huh. Do you really think he came back for that dog? Oh, absolutely. Yes, yeah. he would know that the dog was ready to pass. Ah. Yeah, well, it wasn't an old dog or anything, but they they were inseparable. Well, that's likely why the dog moved on, yes. Mm-hmm. Betty, that's a very uplifting, uh, wonderful story. Now, when you saw this figure at the far end of the field, and you were sort of in your mind's eye, you were able to zoom in and, and identify yes. him as your, a younger version of your husband. Now, after that, did he simply sort of walk off, or did he just sort of vanish? Well, i tell you, I was sitting on the Chesterfield in the living room when I came to. It was this... I wasn't asleep. It was so real. Uh-huh. It was as if I had just um, so somehow you got from the f- the, gone the field. Gone into another 
another place. So you, you definitely took the dog out for a walk in the field and then you came to on but, your sofa in your living room. No, I didn't do that. Hmm. Uh, but when I woke up, the dog was beside me and she's licking my face and she's whining and crying. And it was just, it was, it, everybody thinks it was a dream. To me, it was so real. Well, Betty, only you would know. Uh, yes. For sure. Well, thank you for that call. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All Bye-bye. right. Let's say hello to uh, Arthur in Toronto. Good morning, Arthur. Of course, most people want to believe in fantasy, but the real proof is what God says. He says in one scripture, I don't know where it is, Ralph Hand, the dead know not anything. They're waiting for a resurrection period when God will decide who to bring back to life and who not to. When Christ is on earth, the devil comes down to me and says, Give an act of worship to me, and I'll offer you all the kingdoms of the world. And God says, get away from me. Only God should you worship. Uh, but Arthur, there, there, I mean, we, we do know about uh, communion with the saints, so there is spirit communication. But, uh, that, but that's demon-inspired. Demons and devil will do anything to convince people to turn away from God, and that's what they're doing to, up to this day. All right, Arthur, appreciate the call. Um, you're not going to make a convert out of Arthur, obviously. Uh, Gordon, mm-hmm. um, do all I, 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 do all uh, people have to reincarnate once they pass on, or or we don't know? I would say you don't. You never have to reincarnate. Um, uh, it's advisable, though, if you want to perfect yourself as as a spirit and gain more experience and work on your karma. It's a very good idea to reincarnate. And do you get to choose the circumstances? Uh, the, do you get to choose your parents, for example? Yes, you do. All that is picked out ahead of time. So it, it's, I mean, it's hard to imagine, though, someone, for example, willingly choosing to be born into a family, let's say, uh, abusive alcoholic parents, or to be born in yes. a in a depressing, yes. you know, circumstance. But it but is, people do, but, you know, um, uh, people do make these tough choices, Richard. And uh, if if you have, let's say, a hundred lives on this planet, if you have five or, or ten that are seriously challenging, that's still only a tenth of your overall uh, total. Right, but we but the other thing is. Uh, the value of reincarnation if we have no memory of the previous life. In other words, it's it's almost like graduating into grade six but knowing, remembering nothing about what you learned the previous school yeah. year. Well, I believe the learning is uh, lodged subconsciously and comes up as, you know, wisdom from life experience. Now, whether you use that wisdom whether you A, access it, and B, use it well, is another story, but I believe it is there. Right, right. When you do spirit recovery, um, rescue, spirit rescue, yeah. uh, these are individuals that are trapped. They've, they've passed on, but they're, they're still trapped on this plane? That is correct. How does that happen? I mean, um, for some well, people, it seems like it's, uh, you know, finding themselves in the next, uh, in the afterlife is as simple as, you know, falling off a, uh, out of bed. And others seem yes. to have trouble. What, what's behind that? Well, some people uh, pass very, very quickly. And they pass so quickly that they don't even realize they've passed. And I, since we're talking about uh, 
celebrities and stuff, I can I can give you a very, very vivid example. Uh, John Entwistle, the bass player from the rock band The Who, yes. uh, threw an accidental drug dose, o- overdose while he was um, on tour and on a, in a hotel somewhere, uh, you know, passed. And I, I saw it on uh, the Internet or something, and immediately I thought, oh, this guy needs help. So I sat down and did a meditation, projected to where he was, and started talking to him. And he was definitely unaware of what had happened. He, he felt very alive. And I just chatted with him a bit and sort of tried to bring him around and said, listen, listen, John, uh, um, you've, uh, you've overdosed and you're dead. And he was like, well, I don't feel dead, which a lot of them will say. And, you know, I just sort of got his attention. And that, that's essentially what you do as a, as, a, as a spirit helper. You get their attention. And then I called for someone to come and take him into spirit. <laughs> to, well, I, I just had to laugh because the person that showed up was Keith Moon. <laughs> well, and they just they just laughed and hugged each other, and Keith Moon led them off, and that was the end of that. I would get, I would imagine a, a yeah a familiar face would certainly help. Oh in the yeah, transition. and for most people, it's you know a mother or a brother or you know something like that. But for John Antwistle, it was Keith Moon. And the party continues. Uh, quite possibly, yes. <laughs> uh, so when you when you do a spirit rescue, do you go into people's homes? Um, and, yeah, uh, if it's if it's necessary, I have to do that. Yeah, when people die of sudden heart attacks and strokes, they're often right in their homes, Richard. Right, right. So it's uh, I, I I do not like interrupting a family's privacy, but you know the greater need uh, comes comes to the fore. You have um, you have haunted locations where um, the same scene is react uh, is is um, acted out again and again and again. You know, the same man with the, the top hat comes down the same staircase at precisely the same time yeah. every night. Is that an actual um, uh, a conscious spirit that's trapped, or is that simply sort of an echo from the past? Uh, in my experience, it's it's an echo from the past, although there's there's plenty of cases in the literature where other other uh, ghost hunters and psychics will, will claim that the actual spirit of the deceased person is caught in a sort of a, a you know a loop of activity that they can't seem to escape because of the uh, you know uh, intense emotions that they, that they experienced around the time of their passing and uh, I mean does does time pass for them in that state uh, as it does here on earth for example I mean if they if they are caught in that time loop for hundreds of years, I mean, that must be agonizing, or do, are they even conscious of the passage of time? In my experience, they're not conscious of it. And as strange as that may seem to us, that does seem to be the case. I mean, and I've done this many times, and it, it, it always strikes me as uh, immensely odd that they don't notice the passage of time, but they don't seem to. All right. Um, are you prepared to take a call from a detractor, a non-believer? Sure. All right. James is in Toronto. Good evening, or good morning, James. Hello, James. Are you there? Hi. I, I'm sorry, but... Uh, hi. Hello. Yes, I'm here. Yes, go ahead. Yes. Uh, I, I'm sorry I take exception to um, this. Uh, almost sounds like a purgatory you're describing. A purgatory? Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I'm a believer in this kind of thing. Uh-huh. I, I, I support a lot of what you're saying, but... 
to presume that uh, you're buying a Mercedes in the afterlife or whatever. I mean, this to me, at the it sounds kind of silly. Well, the, the the as you seem to know, sir, there are many levels to the afterlife, and some of them are quite purg as the Catholics I would say, hope quite that my purgatorial. Would evolve beyond the material. Uh, sorry, could you say that again, please? I would hope that my spirit would evolve beyond the material in the afterlife. That sounds like purgatory to me. Well, it probably will, sir. But there's lots of people who uh, are happy with that kind of life. And um, the, uh, for, for example, let me give you an example. Think that of sounds the like billions healthy, of, though. Think of hang the on, James. Hang on, James. James, James, just let, uh, let uh, Gordon complete his thought. Okay, go, go ahead, Gordon. Sir, think of the millions of people around the planet that are terribly, terribly poor. I mean, ridiculously poor compared to the life we live in North America. Now, think of them having access once in a while to a television and what they will see on that television. And when they get to their old age and they die, no matter what religion they're in, they will, they will per- perhaps desire some of the things that you and I would take for granted. So when they get to spirit... They want that stuff, whereas you and I would say, well, I don't want a big house, and I don't want this, and I don't want that. Well, that's because we weren't denied it in this life. But for those that were denied it, these are wonderful things. And who, who, who you know, why should they not get the fruits of their desires? James, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. And uh, I suppose if you look at the, uh, the afterlife as simply another step uh, or another rung on the ladder, uh, it may take you know, uh, a great deal of uh, incarnations before one does sort of evolve beyond this attachment to anything material into a pure spirit form, which I suppose would be, uh, depending on your tradition, nirvana or, uh, uh-huh. or heaven. Uh-huh. All right. Yes, yes. Makes, sure. Yeah, it makes a certain amount of sense. And listen, hey, you know, uh, if I'm so lucky as to, um, uh, to land in an astral plane sort of version of, of Malibu, uh, I wouldn't mind driving around for a, for a spell in a in a in a vintage Thunderbird or something. Something you know, some of these things that I didn't have uh, here on Earth and didn't have time yeah. to uh, to appreciate. Yeah. All right, let's say hello to uh, Tara. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show, Tara or Tara. Hello. Hi there. Um, could your guest possibly comment from a spiritual perspective the the terrible traumatic case of missing Madeline McCann? little girl who disappeared, probably deceased, and the parents are, they can't move on. They're living, but they're also dead. Um, what possible um, learning or resolution from spirit can uh, happen? Ma'am, is this, is this a, ch- a child that has disappeared? Is that, am yes. I getting you correctly? Yes. And this is a case of about four, four, four years ago. I uh, was on holiday with her parents in uh, in Portugal. Brit- oh, yes. uh, British young British girl. Uh huh. And the parents are now deceased. No, no, they're not. But uh, her the child was never found. And I um, see. So I the see. trauma is so tremendous that the parents are caught in some sort of a purgatory. Yes. And the little girl, um, who knows where she is in spirit, probably. Right. Well, um, I, I, I vaguely remember the case now that you bring it up. Um, I believe that all, all suffering on, on the planet, it teaches us. And the, 
the, the parents of that child, as the parents of any child who either goes missing or dies early, uh, if you like, um, learn whatever lessons that they are capable of learning through that suffering. I mean, um, my own father passed when I was 15, and that was a tremendous amount of suffering for me at the time. Um, but I did learn from it, and I uh, went on with my life. Um, so you're saying they're sort of living a sort of a purgatory on Earth. Well, that's perhaps a, a fair way to describe it. Well, there was another, the added um, um, problem there, of course, is that the parents on holiday in Portugal uh, came under a great deal of criticism because they left their small child unattended for a short while. They were a short distance uh, away, but uh, then the child was abducted. And uh, so they have to live, in addition to the loss of their daughter, not knowing what happened, they have to live with that guilt uh, yes. Horrible, horrible situation. Yes, it's 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 awful. I mean, the 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 death of children is is, is just so awful. It's uh, it's one of the things I least like to, to deal with. But uh, I did do a number of uh, retrievals at the Norway shooting uh, last week there, and uh, that was that was pretty painful. But you know, you learned as a retriever, you learn to, to cope with these things. Tara, thank you for the call. Thank uh, you. Uh, a personal uh, a question, uh, if uh-huh. you'll indulge me, uh, Gordon, and that is um, uh, my one and only sort of encounter with the paranormal yeah. occurred uh, several days after my father was uh, buried in, uh, so this is early 1987, he passed away uh, on New Year's Eve 1986, uh-huh. and um, the um, the encounter I had was seeing um, a specter in my my, uh, my bedroom, but it was me. I was looking at my doppelganger. Is wow. that... Is that have you heard of that before, and what does that mean well, there's there's many cases of you know doppelganger sightings in the in the psychical research literature uh richard um, uh, I'm not aware of them being being centered around the death of a parent particularly that 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 is a striking uh uh detail i must say is it i mean is are there instances where a uh, a deceased individual, a spirit, will will take on the appearance of another person, so as not to frighten, or I don't know. I'm just trying to rationalize yeah, there, maybe what happened. There's definitely cases where the deceased spirit will take on uh, an appearance to to lend the, the the maximum degree of comfort to those that they are trying to communicate with. So if you're if you're thinking. Uh, that your father might have taken on your image to make you feel comfortable. I guess it's possible. It's uh, not something I've heard of before, but I certainly wouldn't deny the possibility. Hmm. They can certainly, with a, a little guidance from uh, spirit guides, and you know, the longer they're in spirit, the more guidance they get from spirit guides, um, they can learn to change and shapeshift in many ways, in order to make, uh, you know, those left behind uh, comforted. Does that uh, take a great deal of of energy and effort for uh, a a spirit to manifest in in the physical world? It does, yes. That's why they, they, they resort to things like switching the lights off and on or turning the taps off and on, because that's actually easier. The manifestation takes a huge amount of energy, and even if they're being given uh, help by spirit guides, it takes, and, and they get exhausted very quickly, usually after 30 seconds or a minute. 
Um, so, yeah, it does take a lot of energy. You mentioned um, we won't have time to, to, to speak with uh, John Mack, perhaps another another time. Yes, uh, but are there, who else are you in, in, uh, in fairly regular contact with on the other side? Well, my most regular contactee is, is the... Uh, the the, B, the the ascended master who called Maitreya. I channel him fairly regularly. Uh, that's is that the thirteenth Buddha? Uh, yeah, that's one of his persona, if you like. Yes, right. absolutely. Right. And he's um, I've channeled a whole series of messages that are up on YouTube, and I, I might mention Richard, my YouTube video that's got by far and away the most hits is the one where I discuss. Uh, this uh, got internet gossip about the uh, social activist Raj Patel being the voice of Maitreya uh, from about a year or so ago. I, I put up a, a YouTube commenting on that, and it, it was amazing the number of hits it got. So, I mean, ten times more than, than Dennis Hopper or John Mack or, you know, any celebrity. And uh, how do people uh, get a hold of uh, your, your book? Oh, you know, Amazon, uh, uh, Chapters Indigo, almost anywhere. Internal Life and How to Enjoy It, and uh, the, the, the latest was An American, an American in, in Heaven. Heaven. An American in Heaven. Yes. Excellent. Gordon, always a pleasure. Yeah, likewise, Richard. Nice to talk to you. All right, we'll do this again sometime. Great. Gordon Finn. All right, my thanks uh, to David. David, what's your last name? Gaskin. Gaskin. David Gaskin. Very, very capable work again behind the uh, the board. Thank you for that. And uh, back next week, Patrick Lacey and R. Gary Patterson will uh, will talk about uh, the Elvis uh, is alive rumors, um, which I think these two gentlemen will pretty much completely uh, devastate for those who who think there's still a chance Elvis has not left the building. Uh, uh, Patrick Lacey and R. Gary Patterson will discuss, and also. Uh, the uh, filmmaker Jay we- uh, Wadner or uh, Widener will be here to talk about uh, his film Kubrick's Odyssey. Looking forward to that conversation. Hope you can be part of it. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.